Welcome to the Second Renaissance podcast, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. I'm Anders Sommelson, global futurist, author, and the co-creator of the Adobe CQ, the IQ test for your creative leadership, and your host for the Second Renaissance. Nicole Bradford, great to have you on the second renaissance. Thanks for dialing in. You're in a hotel somewhere in the world. Yes, I live in San Francisco, but I took an excursion to Palm Springs just to get someplace else. I've been sheltered in place for the same in the same place since last March and I just needed a change of scenery. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I feel like we've all been, you know, stuck in a Dostoevsky novel or something like this in the last, you know, 12 months or so. Um, yeah. Um, I'm curious. I mean, you, you, you've had a huge impact through your work at, at Singularity University. I know you founded an organization called Willow um, and that you're a lecturer at Stanford University. You're doing some really impactful work at the CIS. Can you just give us a little bit of your sort of, you know, academic and, and, and business um, background, the family tree in a sense, uh, and uh, let us know why, why you're kind of like this eminent force uh, to be addressing a very important topic today, which is, of course, transformative technologies and the transformative technologies lab that you have founded. Mm. Yeah, great. So, you know, the I think I want to start sort of where I'm at now, because everything, you know, it's one of those things. It's like when you, when you look back on life, it looks like a straight line, <laughs> even though, uh, you know, it, 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 when it's lived forward, it doesn't necessarily feel like that, but the threads of what I do today has actually always been present in my life. Even since I was a little girl watching star Trek in Houston, Texas, you know, it all gets connected. So what I do today for the listeners out there is that I, believe, and it's my mission, to catalyze the health, happiness, and fullest potential of every human. And to do that, I have co-founded a global organization of builders. And those builders include entrepreneurs, investors, and innovators. These are all the people who are sort of driven to create a new era, this, this second renaissance. And when I saw, you know, the opportunity to be on this show, I thought, oh, you know, Anders and I are going to really get along. And so, you know, what the premise is, is that we can take technology and we can actually use it for the inner landscape. And that if you think about Maslow's hierarchy and you think about the bottom two rows, that has been the traditional use of technology, safety, security, food, shelter, et cetera. But all of the layers above it are about the human condition, human creativity, human possibility, human belonging, human connection. And so what our thesis is, is that technology for this inner landscape goes across three verticals. The first is mental and emotional well-being. The second is social and emotional wellness. And the third is human purpose and performance. And within those verticals, we look at, I look for founders and researchers who have research that can be delivered through technology 
for, so for mental and emotional well-being, I'm interested in stress, anxiety, garden variety, depression, happiness, and sleep. For social and emotional wellness, I'm interested in self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and all of the human interaction skills. And of that, I actually include, for example, trust. I think trust is a skill, the giving and the receiving of it. You know, we, we don't really teach it that way, but anything that can be learned can be skilled. And if it can be skilled, there's a role for technology in it. And that's really tied to the future of work. And, and we could talk more about that too. And then the third category is human purpose and performance. And this is enhancing our, you know, enhancing our emotions, uh, enhancing our cognitive abilities, as well as identifying purpose and meaning, because all of these things, whether it's purpose and meaning, whether it's it's connection with self and others, or whether it's the ability to manage stress, they're all the same thing. And so what makes us really unique and, and what makes my thesis very unique is that I believe that this is all a spectrum of mind. It is all a spectrum of the inner landscape and that there's a role for technology in that in order to make it scalable, accessible, and affordable. And you know the, the challenge with the word scalable is that it's been dirtied by tech a little bit um, because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of humanity that's not in it. So now I use the word, you know, pollinating. You know, it's like a, 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 a dandelion, uh, you know, a single dandelion can have 15,000 seeds in its lifetime. Um, and so it still gets everywhere, but it's, you know, every, every seed is a self-contained possibility. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's really what this is about. Um, I came to it from video games. I had been working in China, overseeing World of Warcraft China, which at that time, and, and I was doing operations, I was leading operations. At that time, World of Warcraft China was the largest branch of one of the largest video games in the entire world. And I did that, and then in between two assignments, I went on a meditation retreat, and I had really what can only be called an awakening. I had a, a, a intensely you know, extraordinary experience where when I finished the retreat, I felt deeply, deeply connected, not only to myself, but to all of life, every other human. And I wanted people to experience that. I'd been in video games for 14 years and I got into video games because I believe that video games were the next evolution in human storytelling. I think one of the, you know, the biggest things that's coming is, you know, what is the nature of the digital worlds um, that will overlap ours? Will, it, will they be predatory or will they be platforms? And how will we move in between them? And, you know, let's definitely talk about augmentation and the nature of it later. You know, and then before that, I was in, you know, business school and, you know, all my life, I have been a creative. I, you know, wrote a novel um, that, a, you know, the outline of it when I was in college was basically about nine black women who start a multinational technology company whose uh, revenues or profits are dedicated um, to the, you know, liberation of women and girls, mental liberation like mental liberation, how you think, who you are uh, for women and girls around the world. And then, you know, really, when I really look back, you know, I remember being a, a you know, a, a kid watching Star Trek. And, you know, I grew up in Texas uh, in the 80s. And, you know, at, at that time, you know, like 
race was more of an issue even than it, you know, than people might imagine it was now. And so I used to watch this show where, and what really sort of like captivated me about it is one, people's lives were so much better. And two, humanity for the most part had decided that they were on the same team. And that just really, you know, spoke to me. And so, you know, lived forward, you know, it's like, what is the, what is the connection that leads one to the next? Look backward. It's really all about human flourishing. It's all about connection to self and others. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, I think that the work is the most, is among, I'll just say among, uh, the most important work of this time, because that is, you know, our inner landscape is the place that we haven't um, made, you know, available for all um, the kinds of tools that allow human beings um, to be healthy, happy, and fulfill their potential um, in, you know, in, in a major way. And I do believe also that this is the critical time because I think that you know, there are, there are two roads. One looks like Starfleet and the other looks like Hunger Games. And that is not written yet. Um, and so, you know, there's still, I mean, I think, I think the Starfleet options have gone or probabilities have gone up a bit. Uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, in the last several months, I think that's gone up. Um, you know, and I think COVID is really making people examine what's important. Um, but you know, that future is not written yet. Uh, and it's really going to take all of us working together, um, to, you know, to, to bring that future to bear. So, so I'm curious, I mean, and, and, and fascinating, you know, life story and certainly some of the, some of the, the, the threads there, um, which I'm, you know, will go and pluck out in, in, in a moment. I guess in, in, the, in the present moment, despite the fact that, you know, people have recognized and, and, and identified that technology really has become in many ways, you know, our lifeline for, for human connectivity and, and telehealth and, you know, the deployment of, of AI with regards to, you know, vaccine developments, et cetera, that people do have this sort of love-hate relationship, this fear-based relationship with, with, with technology, which in many ways is sort of this, you know, it's a neutral tool and it can be used for, for, for good or for ill. Um, from your perspective, you know, given the transformative technologies lab, um, I'm assuming that you're sort of biased one way, but you know, tell me a little bit about the, the the sort of potentiality. You talk about the, you know, the importance of I guess mapping and and maybe even hacking or, or scaling or pollinating the, the the inner landscape. How, how can technology do that? Mm -hmm. Well, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of very specific examples. Um, so I'll give you a couple of specific examples. Um, and then I'm actually going to start off with, you know, a, a definition of technology, because I think that will help. And, and, you know, often when people are thinking about tech, um, they're thinking, you know, as an issue, they're thinking actually about a very specific type of tech, but they don't say that they say tech in general. Um, and yeah, that's how I'll do it. So, 
the definition of technology for me is that what takes what is scarce and makes it abundant. And so, you know, and, and there's a period of time, like you and I both have glasses on like 3000 years ago. It's like the, 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 the original wearable technology. Yeah. 3000 years ago, pure magic, like maybe stonable, <laughs> you know, pure magic. Um, you know, your cars, vaccines, you know, microwaves, like, like we're surrounded by technology. What most people actually really mean when they're talking about the perils of technology is they are talking about attention economy, social networks. It's a very so social dilemma style of worries. Yeah. Yeah. Attention economy, social networks is really what they're talking about. That's 99.9% of what they are talking about. And so, you know, I really encourage people when they say, you know, the perils of tech, they should be specific and say attention economy, social networks, because if we don't name it and we don't define it, then we can't do anything about it because people don't know what they're, you know, people don't know what they're sort of like solving for, you know, it's sort of like, um, I have a lot of friends who work in climate, and, you know, there is a there is a helplessness that people get when you just say climate, you know, overall. Um, and so it's really helpful for people when you talk about, you know, when you're mobilizing people to talk about very specific things that, you know, they can orient on the thing that they're the most passionate about, whether it's water or, you know, carbon removal or a bunch of other things. And so if we want to do something about this technology, if we want it to actually really serve us, and we want to solve for the problems that have happened, then we need to be specific when we're talking about it. And it's attention economy, social networks is the bulk of the issue. Um, and so, you know, so within that, I am not interested in any of that type of um, technology. I am interested in community and I am interested in social bonds, but there's lots of other ways to do that as opposed to the attention economy. Uh, you know, where, where, you know, you and the technology are not on the same side. You know, it's, it's designed to take your attention and you are the product. Um, you know, and so there's lots of, of other ways to do that. Some really specific examples. One of my um, absolute favorite examples um, is a company called, uh, or a product called Moxie. And Moxie is a social emotional learning robot. And a lot of times people are like, why do we need a robot to learn about emotions? Well, in the US, 90% of K through 12 teachers want emotional mod modules. And this is really, it's like, you know, relating to your feelings and, and a bunch of other things like that. You know, and the reality is like, when you think about how we teach people how to feel, how to be, how to become, how to deal with their own stress and anxiety, how to negotiate, how to handle conflict, you know, because, it, you know, when people are out here peopling, there's conflicts and that doesn't mean it's a war, but it's like, I want, I want, you know, the, I want pepperoni pizza and you want vegan. Like, how do you negotiate that? It's like, people don't, we're not actually taught this. You know, what we were taught in school is we're taught, you know, we're taught, uh, we have an industrialized school system. And so we're, we're taught things that are basically, you know, units of production. 
Um, and, you know, we aren't really taught how to human. And the reason I'm going to give you this example that's going to make you go, okay, that's kind of crazy. Um, I, I, I love that. I, I was going to say, I, lo I love that you're, you're using human as, as a verb, by the way. So <laughs> my other favorite one is like uh, people, people peopling. You know, people be peopling all over the place. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, they're just peopling. And so, you know, it's like we kids are born with vocal cords, but we don't expect them to be born speaking, you know, Swedish. Like we don't expect it at all. We fully expect that even though you're born with vocal cords that are developed, you're going to have to learn the language. But we actually believe that people being born with emotions equates to emotional fluency. You know, we don't teach it anywhere in our society with the exception of Montessori schools and Finland. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I was, I was going to say that because uh, my son, Lucian, is three and a half. He goes to, to Montessori. And yesterday we had a parent and teacher morning where, in fact, uh, one of the liaisons is now uh, bringing in mindfulness training for the kids at this very young tender age, which I think is a, is, a, is, a, is a beautiful thing. I just wish I could have been trained earlier. I'm having to, you know, retrofit some of these skills later on in life. Well, one of the other things that will happen um, in your, um, you know, in your son's education is that they're also going to teach him emotional fluency. They're going to teach him how to describe what he's feeling, to know it, to even know how he's feeling. You know, because it's like, I can't get you to attend to my needs if I can't even imagine what they are and describe them to you. And so, you know, when you talk to most people about, you know, so if you say, okay, all the kids need Montessori education, you know, and then it's like, how many children are there in the entire world? The first thing people are going to talk about is resources and cost. And that is a really great example of something where, you know, technology can support more children having access to that type of, um, to that type of uh, education. It's not to replace parents. It's not, um, you know, it's not to replace teachers. It's just a compliment. Um, and so this particular product I want to tell you about, um, it's a robot. And that's just Gen 1. You know, it's $1,600. That's expensive, all of that. But they've gotten a couple of things done really well. First of all, uh, so what happens is that, um, you know, I think the first thing is that technology is not, um, you know, the, the mediator of experience in totality. And what I mean by that is that, so the child gets the robot and the robot sends the children on missions with other humans. So, you know, it might ask you, I, if I'm the robot, I might say, Anders, who is your best friend? And who would you say? Wow. Uh, who is my best friend? That's a really good uh, question. I'm going to say Ben, who is uh, currently living in Vanuatu. <laughs> okay. So, so then, I, then the robot would say, would ask you about how Ben feels. And, and then would say, well, go ask Ben and then come back and tell me. And so, so the, the goal is like, it's not that I'm learning emotions from a, um, from a robot. It's that the robot is the chapter headings and people, you know, are the chapters. 
and it sends people out, it sends kids out. Um, and the other thing they've done is um, it can only be active for one hour a day. So children must learn how to wait. And so you hear all of these studies about how, um, you know, uh, impulse control is an indicator of a childhood indicator of later success. But if you think about it and you're a parent, it's like no one's ever told you how to teach impulse control, you know? Like, like, there's not like, like, it's like, okay, here's how you, and you might get it in a book or two. I'm getting like flashbacks to the, you know, to school drop-offs this morning. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so what happens with this is that the kids have to wait. They have to wait 24 hours. Nothing can be done about it. They can't complain. They can't make it happen. They, so in an on-demand world, they have to wait. It also keeps them from binging which is wonderful. Uh, the third part is they use homomorphic security. Um, and so all the child's data, like its voice files back and forth with the robot, um, any images of the child's face, it's all stored locally. And the company doesn't pull it up. Uh, the only thing that goes up is the math. It's kind of like, um, you know, bug reports. So the only thing that goes up is the math. And if parents lose, their uh, password, then the robot gets wiped. And they sort of like have to explain <laughs> why to their kid why the robot doesn't remember them. So they've gotten these really big things right. And their goal is not to have you know robots in every home. It's just the very beginning of like how do you really develop, you know, a, a um, you know, a foundation training system, you know, that allows um, you know, children um, to develop emotional fluency supported by their parents. And so the, the, when the person who set out, set out to do it, Paolo, he said, I want to build something that can be a best friend for children, not their only friend, but a best friend um, and an ally for parents, you know? And so it does other things like the way children speak can show if there's any developmental issues, you know, even before often parents can tell. And so it's like, you know, giving the parents a lot of information and supporting them, um, you know, in their, their busy lives. It's not a replacement. An hour a day is not a replacement parent, uh, but it's a tool. And so that is, you know, there aren't many in the social emotional area, but that's a really, I think it's a perfect example of what's possible. Well, and what, what comes to mind here, I'm sort of getting goosebumps when I'm listening to you, but it's like the augmentation. And I guess, you know, it's, it's an... You know, a, a, you know, technological extension of maybe what is our, you know, our limited awareness, right? And um, and that, you know, if if you have like a little alarm bell, you know, going off that, you know, you're hearing, you know, say for lack of a better example, you know, a, a you know a lisp because it's how X Y Z always speaks. You know, you might you might might sort of nip something like that in in the bud earlier on uh, through you know some you know, some smaller, you know, future signals, right? Before they, you know, potentially become a bigger issue later down the track. So I think of that as sort of as augmentation and um, yeah, what wonderful example. I, th I mean, I think you're right in saying that people, you know, criticize technology largely because of, you know, movies like The Social Dilemma and, 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 and what you've, you've previously described. But there's also this sort of fear that, you know, tech will not just augment humans, but, you know, there's also this fear of, of technological unemployment. Um, and I guess my, my next question is sort of two-pronged. 
one, do you see that, you know, whole scale will, will lose certain jobs or is it more tasks in our everyday life? And then secondly, as, as technology, you know, gets more sophisticated, like in the robot and, and other AIs that, that I'm sure you'll describe today, as it gets more sophisticated, what, what, what sort of fundamental human skills are the ones that we should be really, you know, nourishing in ourselves and, and the next few generations? Yeah, I mean, I, that's wonderful. You know, it's, it's um, you know, out of all of those job loss numbers, you know, there certainly are going to be jobs that are lost. Um, but the most important one is actually the task shift. And so basically anything that's rote, anything that is a repetitive task can be done by software. Um, and so what you're really seeing, like if you were to look at your phone, if you were to take your phone, the, oh, I don't know what happened. Um, you dropped for a second. If you were to take your phone and look at every app on your phone and then just say all the phones in the world disappeared, like there's been, you know, <laughs> the number of jobs that you're only just your phone by itself has already taken with software, right? So software takes what's wrote. Um, and, but what's left are the things that we don't train people how to do, which is to be truly deeply human. Um, and because what's left are humans creating together and solving problems together and leading together and having intuitive leaps together. Like that is what's left. And so that is why that, that future of work and social emotional learning is so important because, you know, like Google did this thing called Project Aristotle when they were looking at, you know, the most innovative teams and the most innovative teams, they, they set out and they thought that it was going to be teams that were led by the most brilliant engineers because it's such an engineering oriented company. And that was not the case. It was, it was certainly the people were brilliant, but, um, you know, it was the, the people who had the most measurable innovations and delivered the most ROI to the company were the people who had the ability to create psychological safety. And, and people often, when they hear that, they think that it means a rubber room or it's nice. You know, it's like the nice, some of the nicest places you and I have been are some of the most toxic places. You know, it's not about nice. It's about, is it okay to take a risk? You know, can I, can I think with you and, and that be okay? Can I be wrong with you? You know? And so that is like, like, that is really what, what does it. And so, you know, the reason why examples like Moxie are so important uh, and why it's an issue that there are so few <clears throat> is because, you know, the, for the, for the curve on, you know, as the tasks shift to software and the speed to which we need to jump onto humans creating together, solving problems together. And by the way, humans solving problems together is also known as a company. It's also known as a community. It's also known as a family. It's also known as a country. You know, it's like our potential is so much more even than we've even imagined. And that's where all the new jobs will be. It'll be in those new entities, you know, um, and it'll, it'll be in people creating things that we haven't even imagined. Um, and so we have to like get to that point. You mentioned World of Warcraft a little bit earlier on and, and your, your role um, in ops in, in, in China. Um, 
I'm curious, you know, what role does games, we've touched upon Montessori, but, you know, what, what about the digital world um, or, you know, analog, monopoly, whatever it happens to be, what, what role does games play to, to help humans, um, you know, amplify our own skills or, or tweak them? Okay, um, let me start with my definition of a game. A game is uh, narrative exploration play and community so say that again so so narrative exploration play and community play and community yeah and so you know when you when you think when you see when you see animals you know play games together you know it's like when we were kids and we were playing tag you know tag in 2021 is just tag, you know, tag in, you know, 2000, you know, BC, (laughs) you know, is avoid the predators, right? Um, You know, so it's like games are, you know, really engaging ways of understanding and experiencing the world and connecting with one another and building bonds. That's really what it is. And so whether it's analog or whether it's digital, what's interesting about the digital games is that you know the digital games and the the digital worlds allow us to experience things we couldn't otherwise experience. So you know one of the examples would be um, you know the in a lot of the early VR there was some studies where um, people were for there were studies based on bias where um, people would um, play walk through an experience in. Uh, as either a gender or a race that they were not naturally. And their, um, and their uh, sort of like, when they're sort of like measured for bias before and after, bias decreases, you know, after you spend a short period of time in an avatar that is not your gender, not your race. Now they had to do things like, like you have to show the arms like this. So someone, you know, sees their arms as themselves. Like there's things that you have to do for that to happen, you know, and it's not always a, a permanent decrease, but for like right afterwards, there's a decrease. And so, you know, the ability for, you know, games to allow you to walk in someone else's shoes, to experience someone else's life. Because, you know, and, and often when people talk about games, it's sort of like they, they sort of say that as a as a negative. But, you know, in the world that we have today, uh, experimentation is expensive. You know, it can be very costly to, you know, ex- to try on something else. Um, and since one of the processes of becoming an adult is to try things you don't like and to discover that. Um, I think there's a lot of great use for it. And how is, you know, game design and 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 what the likes of, you know, Jane McGonagall, et cetera, are doing, you know, how, how is that, you know, can we apply that sort of game-based thinking to some of the some of the big issues with the human condition or some of the big, you know, societal or global challenges we're we're currently seeing? Absolutely. I mean, I I, I absolutely games are outstanding for learning, you know, like they're really outstanding for learning. Um, you know, I was talking to an investor the other day who invested in ed tech and uh, so much of the ed tech for a very long time was about, you know, how to deli- deliver um, 
you know, this module. And there's like, you know, he had found someone who instead their, their focus is on joy. You know, so think about all the ed tech have you ever seen. It's really about like, you know, uh, you know, power filling, almost like, you know, fragois, <laughs> like power filling concepts in, in the most efficient, effective, you know, remembering way possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Educational guavage, yeah, yeah. Joy. It's not about the joy of learning, the, you know, the curiosity of exploring. You know, it's not about that, uh, but it should be, you know. Um, and, you know, the other day I was talking to, uh, one of my favorite fields is this, there's this incredible field called neuroaesthetics. And basically they are, um, you know, using brain imaging and other things to, you know, really I try to identify um, the impact of the arts on the brain. And so there are things like, um, you know, um, seeing the impact of dancing on the brain um, and other things. And so, you know, we were talking about there's probably a world and, and this requires a breakthrough in imaging, which by the way is on its way, like an absolute breakthrough in imaging. We're not there yet. Right now it's like brain imaging is very expensive. It's very hard to get done. You know, um, you know, uh, medical uses are first, um, psychology uses and other things are second at universities, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, just like anything, it's like cell phones used to be $15,000. Genomes used to be $100,000. Now genomes are less than a thousand um, and cell phones are a couple of hundred bucks. Um, and so, or they can be. Um, and so the same thing will happen with, you know, body imaging and brain imaging. And so she was saying that, and this was so mind blowing. She was like, there'll be a time where our definition of knowledge, you know, it's not going to be about how many facts, you know, because the full scope of human knowledge is on the internet. There isn't anything that humanity knows that you cannot Google to, you know, at, at this point. And so it's not about whether or not the facts are there and how much you know them. It's going to be about, you know, neural density, you know, and, you know, and, and the, like the density of your neurons, so you can have those leaps of, of, um, you know, of insight that show you that this is connected to that. And so she was imagining, this is Susan Maxman at John Hopkins university. She was imagining a time sometime in the future where, you know, your teacher, you know, or your guide looks at your brain map and says, Anders, you've got to start dancing. Like this area is like, like, this is not, you don't have enough this and this, like you get, you know, like you must dance for the next three months, Roomba, tango, waltz, <laughs> you know, and that's your assignment, you know, like, like that's what it, what it should be, or that's what I believe it will be eventually. So, I mean, this sort of touches on, you know, the, the, you know, concepts of, you know, wearable and even, you know, implantable technology. And we've talked about the original, you know, wearable technology already, but, um, which is of course our spectacles, but, um, you know, whenever we do research or we get asked to put in, you know, trend reports or white papers on emerging technologies, one of, one of our clients has asked us about, you know, what are the biggest, you know, wealth, sorry, not wealth, wellness and health trends, a little bit of a um, fusion of words there. Um, you know, there, there can be a lot of 
you know, this sort of focus on like, okay, keto was trending and, you know, in 2018, 2019, and then, you know, it's intermittent fasting and it's, you know, um, pescatarian or veganism and, you know, the sustainable diet. And these, these are, you know, no doubt very sort of, you know, generic pieces of advice. Obviously, with transformative technologies, we get this sort of, you know, we start getting a bit of a hyper-personalization. Um, even, even in that space, though, we, we, you know, we see technologies like Aura or, you know, 23andMe and, you know, um, different technologies that kind of do sort of like one or a few things. Do, do, do you see that, like, is it the, you know, Apple smartwatch or another technology that can kind of give us, you know, you know, one source of the truth that, you know, we can build different APIs into or whatever it happens to be to sort of, to get the recommendation that Anders, you'll get X, Y, Z, you know, middle-aged disease unless I start dancing Roomba. Mm. Well, you know, the, um, the unified dashboards are not really there yet. Like the truly unified dashboards that have everything. Cause it's like, you know, there's, you know, like there's your, there's the signal, which could be your heart rate variability, your EEG, your GSR, your ECG. Like there's, there's lots of signals, but what is the context around them? And then even if you have signal plus context, what is the correct intervention? And when you have signal plus context plus integration uh, intervention, what is the right integration? You know, that, that actually is because we're holistic, you know, um, you know, we're not just, it's like, it's like the, you know, the, the, I don't know if you, if you ever saw Schoolhouse Rock in the U.S., but, you know, there used to be, uh, there used to be this one song where, that I remember from being a kid, where they said like that, you know, the, the, the leg bones connected to the ham bone, you know, it's like, it's actually, it actually is all connected. And so right now, you know, where we at, where we're at in terms of technology is we're past the single signals, you know, five or six years ago, there was a lot of product out there that was just a single signal. Most, uh, you know, most of the successful products now are multi-signal. They're pulling signal from a couple of different places. Um, the thing that we're moving out of is we're moving out of measuring and tracking into an, into interventions, you know? So when I advise founders, I'm like, if you don't have an intervention, like if you're not doing something to change things, you know, you are like, you're, you're, you're in yesterday. Um, and then, you know, now I'm starting to tell founders, um, you know, yes, solve your problem because, you know, running a, starting a company is like, it's like the, you know, it's like when the, when the turtles get out of the nest and that race to the ocean, like a founder has to have like, uh, sort of like, a, you know, an absolute focus on the problem she or he is solving. So they have to have that. But, you know, as soon as they get to the ocean, what I believe the reality is going to be in the next couple of years is that every product is either going to have to build out its own ecosystem or it will have to fit into another ecosystem, you know, uh, so that you can have um, that integration uh, that, you know, that either goes up into a dashboard or somehow allows the person to think about their whole life uh, as opposed to just a silo. <clears throat> 
Yeah, I mean, um, I, sort of, you know, I think about this not maybe from just a you know a personal health perspective, but also like you know an IoT perspective here, and the, you know maybe even the you know the the smart home. Um, you know, as late as Monday, I was up at our we have a, a little summer house, or as we call it in Sweden, or or uh, you know a, a beach house in Australia, a cabin maybe by American standards, and um, and when we when we don't go there. Uh, we Airbnb it, and um, which has been a you know great way you know in talk, terms of you know building community, actually you know making new friends and 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 having you know some human connectivity during during you know periods of lockdown etc. as well. But it is you know it's an off you know it's an offshore property. You can only get there by boat, and it's super inconvenient to get to. It's totally worthwhile, but it you know it it does involve a ferry and then a ten minute trek. Uh, so kind of very old school and we harvest our own rainwater for all our, you know, hydration needs. So drinking water, um, and we, we capture that from the sky. Um, so we're limited by, you know, the, the, the size of our roof in terms of how much water we, we can capture. And then of course we have storage, you know, restrictions, et cetera, but it becomes this sort of wonderful ecosystem once you start, um, monitoring. So I have like, the Davy water tank sensor that connects to our main water tank and, and gauges the you know the, the the pressure of how much water is left in this in this water tank, and it tells me based on the usage you know in aggregate um, or on average amongst users depending on if it's you know two people or if it's you know a family of six staying with us you know how many days before <laughs> how many days of Airbnb you know utilization. Uh, are possible before I have to, you know, ship in water or, you know, wait for a really good, you know, rainfall. I then have my Net Atmo uh, weather station and, and 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 smart home monitoring system, which you know, of course, does all the things like, you know, measures how amazingly clean the air is in this national park, but it also tells me, you know, every day how much water. Uh, we actually captured from the roof and then based upon a couple of, you know, scientific formulas, I know, okay, well, last night we got another 500 liters, which, you know, is, you know, a couple of days of, of, uh, of usage for, for a couple who are having a romantic weekend up there. Then, you know, remotely I monitor the, you know, air conditioning system uh, or the ducted heating system so I can turn it on and off. Um, in the, you know, we're using renewable energy up there. But again, I can monitor all of that remotely in case, you know, a guest didn't turn off the air con so that we're not overusing power. So there's a, but yeah, so, you know, but like still there's not the one app that kind of brings it all together, but at least, you know, it brings me, brings me intelligence and, and it reduces what my wife calls my water anxiety. Um, which is on the occasions that we have very hot, dry periods in, in Australia, like you guys do in, in, in California as well. Um, and then based upon that, you know, we can stage stage interventions uh, and build communities. So with, with our neighbor, for example, her water tanks are full, which means that any overflow from hers, they're currently running out into the national park, but I can use a bit of her water um in exchange for for you know for you know keeping her yard clean and you know and looking after some of the maintenance of her water tanks etc so you know it's kind of when i think about you know the internet of things and the smart home we can make so many smarter decisions and i guess this you know comes down to sort of you know when we flip that over into you know personal health and emotional and mental well-being would be amazing to just you know, as you said before, be able to read the signs, know, 
you know, within, within a shadow of doubt, you know, the exact emotion I'm experiencing right now, figure out how that may or may not be serving me and that, you know, some doing some breath work with Wim Hof or, you know, jumping in a cold shower for, you know, 35 seconds is going to help me get out of that state. Or maybe that state is serving me really, really well. What, what, what's, what's your sort of vision for, you know, personalized health and well-being and both, you know, emotional, physical, mental well-being? Because I know this is a, you know, passion, passion topic of yours. Yeah, um, a, a couple of, of reactions. So one, you know, um, I'm deeply interested in IoT and smart homes and smart cities um, as well, because, you know, a city is certainly more than buildings, but there's a lot of buildings in a city, you know, and so smart buildings are very interesting. And so one of the things that many people don't know is that there's a lot of interesting research on the impact of cognition on cognition of light, sound, temperature, and air quality. You know, so, you know, and cognition is definitely something that, you know, that we track. And so all of those things, you know, so right now for the bulk of the smart home, you know, um, outcomes that are being measured for, you know, the, the bulk of what people are doing is trying to, is, is saving money on the energy bill. But, you know, with, you know, a slight, with a little adaptation, you can also, like, I think we're going to see high performance buildings, you know, where the buildings are engineered for different things. Like this is the building for happiness and this is the building for relaxation and this is the building for uh, performance. I think, you know, we'll see a place where, you know, you'll see, um, uh, you know, not, uh, you'll see labels on buildings, you know, uh, because so much of the design will be frictionless. You know, it'll be just in the building that I think ethics will require that buildings be labeled. You know, like you might be happier in this building. Watch out and, and enter at your own risk. <laughs> well, you should always know, you know, like I really believe in, in um, you know, in labeling. Um, the other thing is that, you know, one of the things about this kind of technology is that, you know, one of my design principles is really keeping in mind you know, we can't always measure what matters. You know, not everything that matters can be measured, right? And so, but, you know, but there's a lot that can be measured. And so I'm an advocate of like measuring what we do, like in the, what we can um, and using it to support all of the things I've described, but having a culture and philosophy where, you know, as our, as our range of measurement increases, our range of magic does too on the front end, you know, because um, there should all be there, you know, humans require the unknowable. We require the unknowable. Uh, we're highly motivated to discover and to explore and to be creative. So we require the unknowable. And so, you know, what, what I actually think will happen is, you know, is, and the culture has to be right on, you know, has to be supportive of it, is that, you know, right now there's a lot of people falling through the cracks. Like a really great example that would be, you know, very effective would be, you know, um, effective matching systems for people and mental health support. Not just, you know, is it in your zip code, but is this actually the right person 
for you or, or better match personality, voice, you know, some other things, because the number of people, when you look at the, I don't know the numbers in Australia, but like in the U S the number of people who never go back for their second visit to the therapist because they just didn't have chemistry with that person. You know, that doesn't even include all of the people who never actually even get to see one, but it's like, that's something that like, if you could make that first visit be effective, then that is incredible use of it. So, so like a Tinder for, um, for psychologists and psychiatrists, et cetera. Tinder is surface level, you know, Tinder is, do I like the way that you look and do I, you know, like do actually that one's really, do I like the way that you yeah, so deep and meaningful version of this where, you know, be, be, be beyond any of the optics, you get a sense of, hey, are we actually going to click? You know, am I actually going to, am I actually going to go into some really dark places with this person in a, in a constructive way? Yes. So that's like, you know, so that's, it's like, so, so I'm an advocate of like, you know, let's, let's use technology on the stuff that raises the floor and then let's have a culture of magic you know, where, you know, where we, we encourage the unknowable, you know, as an essential part, you know, of human motivation. Um, Then the third, the, the next point is a design principle that's called better without. Um, And so, you know, and I got this from Vivian Ming, uh, who's amazing, but it's this idea that when we, when we use these tools, one of the design principles should be that um, they actually train us up you know, that, that we go, you know, they train us up so that, you know, our natural human state, you know, is actually is becomes better without, you know, that it's not a replacement for our own judgment, you know, so we don't end up being, you know, the frog in the pot that we just get so good at managing our stress that we never actually quit that job or get that divorce. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, get the divorce, <laughs> quit the job. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Don't just endure. Yeah. 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 Or, or have that baby or, you know, ask her out, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, so, so there's, so there's, so there's that part. And then the last thing is that, you know, um, all of this requires, um, you know, like the thing that, that I spend a lot of my time on a lot of my time talking to people on, um, you know, and whether it's like researchers or regulators or whatever is, on uh, ethics and um, data privacy, sovereignty, um, you know, and integrity. And so, because, you know, the, the, you know, with GDPR in, in Europe, it's like, like your email address is the least of your data. <laughs> you know, if I can send you a, like an email, like it's the least of your data. The amount of neuro and bio data that's about to come online, you know, it's like you're, if you have a, a camera on your, you know, uh, if you have an HD camera, uh, which I think you do because your picture is really sharp. It is 4K. Yeah, it can pick up your respiration and it can pick up your heart rate through the camera. So it's like, like the neuro and bio data. I'm just, I'm just backing, I'm just backing off a little bit. <laughs> you know, that's like, that's, you know, that like that's, it's essential that we get that right. So one of my favorite things is, um, um, uh, uh, role, um, we, we had a speaker at our conference who has, uh, developed the, uh, 
the Neurodata Bill of Rights. Um, and, but I think it also applies towards biodata. And it basically says um, things like, you know, you have a right to agency, meaning, you know, the, the, and they're mostly working on neurotech, but, you know, that um, the things that you use should not uh, preempt your free will. So you have the right of agency. Um, you know, uh, you have the right of free, freedom from algorithmic bias. Now, for the most part, when people think about al algorithmic bias, they think about race and gender. They think about things like there was a big case with Monster where they weren't actually showing women CEO roles because the algorithm was based on how likely is it for a woman to have a CEO role. So they never actually came up in the searches. You know, and if you don't know there's an opportunity, you certainly aren't going to go after it, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, so there's, there's, those are the types of bias, but, you know, when you get into this type of thing, it's like, you know, a young voice, you know, your voice now and your voice at 15 are totally different and your voice at 70 is going to be totally different. So, you know, it's like age, um, you know, uh, English is the first language. Like there's, there's so many things that are based on the actual data set um, and, you know, and what it's being used for. So freedom from algorithmic bias just means in general, it's like you should not lose, you know, uh, opportunities or, uh, or be damaged in any way from, you know, the algorithm, no matter who you are. Um, and so I think that's wonderful. Um, there's another one that they have that's really important, which is equal access. You know, like there's a certain point where, you know, um, there will be a point in the future where, you know, if, you know, if basically everyone who wants augmentation should be able to have it. It should not be a rich person's game. It should be like everyone who wants augmentation. It should be a personal choice, like, you know, religion or anything else. Um, and so, you know, for that to be a right uh, for equal access to neurotech. Like that is, you know, like, I think that's fundamental. Uh, and so they have some other great ones, um, but, um, oh, and privacy, of course, uh, it should never, your, your neuro and bio data should never be used against you. Um, and, um, you know, and then of course, um, you know, sovereignty, um, you know, who, who owns what? And, and I think really the solution, you know, that, that I'm really looking for is someone to put forth um, the ability to label public, private, or for sale. Because you would think very differently about your personal data. Like you can pick up, you know, there's, I've seen emotional state from um, gate detection, just like how you walk. <laughs> you know, I've seen people working on that. And so like, you know, let's say you go to New York, you know, the New York uh, operating system has never seen you before. So therefore you're really valuable, you know, to people who are there and you've said, oh, this is, this is always private. This is public and this is for sale. Mm -hmm. And if when you go from the hotel to dinner and back again, you get home, there's a check that pays for your trip to New York. Like you'd be okay with that. You'd be like, yeah, I sold that data. I'm happy about it, but you should have that choice. And so that's, that's like, we need these types of flexibility. Um, you know, uh, these types of solutions. Um, and I believe those are coming too. It's like the early data unions that people are starting to work on. 
Um, and that actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation about, um, you know, why it's really important to say, um, you know, attention economy, social networks, because the reality is that no one person today has any leverage against Facebook. Like every time people write that thing where they're like, I hereby say Facebook can't, <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, between, you know, your history, your friends and the cookie network, like they've already got you mm. completely. And so that can, if we, if we don't specify what we're talking about, we can get overwhelmed and not work on the solutions that we actually really need to make this technology, um, you know, the, the transformative technology, the well-being technology, the wellness technology that I, I work on, you know, accessible for all. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, you had your own sort of, you know, personal eureka moment, it sounds like at the, you know, meditation retreat for 10 days. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're such a, you know, tech evangelist and, and a humanist in, in, in so many ways. And yet there's this sort of deep grounding of, of, of ancient wisdom and, and, and using some ancient techniques um, to, you know, potentially be the best version of, of yourself as well. Um, do you want to just describe that, you know, intervention or however you would describe that sort of, you know, narrative journey for your for yourself on, on that sort of Maslow's needs hierarchy elevation? Well, I mean, for me, it's like I, um, you know, I was in China. I was rotating to Hong Kong for another role at my company and I had, uh, I had uh, three weeks off. And um, I collected, I was collecting experiences like any sort of like type A executive might. I wanted to get Patty certified in Thailand. I wanted to uh, go to Bhutan and I wanted to do one of these meditation retreat things. Um, and little did I know. <laughs> it wasn't just a bucket list thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had been you know, trying to meditate, but this was a 10 day silent. It was pretty hardcore in comparison to what I had done before. Um, and it completely changed my life. Um, and, you know, I had, um, you know, uh, six challenging days and then three days of, you know, feeling completely connected to all of life. Um, and, you know, just, just the most, the happiest, the most fearless I had ever been because, you know, basically what happens is it turns out that, you know, if you, if you quiet the mind, if you quiet the inner chatter, um, then you're a lot less afraid because it's that inner voice that's telling you not the like, not the inner guidance, but the inner critic that's telling you all the terrible things that can happen. And when that voice gets quiet, um, it turns out you get fearless you know, cause you, you don't have, you don't have a bad roommate <laughs> anymore. Um, you know, and I just felt so amazed and so connected. I really wanted that to be available to everyone and that, and because I had been in technology and I had such a positive association with it, you know, it felt logical to me that the two would go together. Like, why would you not, how could you not? Um, and so then I was introduced to my uh, co-founder for the nonprofit and, you know, and that was seven years ago. Yeah. Beautiful convergence of mindfulness and, 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 and technology, mindful technology, right? It's, um, 
I'm I'm curious when we're nearly into the end zone and, and thank you for 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 um for speaking up. We're beyond the you know 10, 10 day silent retreat here. Um I'm curious just to for, for people that are, are are curious, um, you know, some some people can't travel to Bhutan to hang out face to face, but you know, given scalable technologies, which are, you know, maybe your favorite wearable technology and which one would be the sort of favorite app that you think, you know, has helped you the most on your, you know, continued journey of, of transformation? Yeah, the, um, you know, the, the things that I tell people who are just really getting started is, um, you know, for, um, so my personal, so often people ask me what my personal meditation app is. Um, I use Insight Timer. Um, and, um, and, you know, and I just love it. I just really need a timer and, you know, and all of my, all my data is there for years of, of meditating. Um, and, you know, I go pretty, I go pretty hardcore on the retreats. Like I've done 33 days in the jungle of Burma, and, you know, you know, so, so I'm like really hardcore. So I actually just need a timer. Uh, but there's a lot of other, um, and inside timer starting to have more, uh, it has some pretty good onboarding programs. Of course there's headspace and there's calm. Um, you know, those are all outstanding. Um, I just use a timer. Um, a couple of things that I do that I really love. Um, I, I have an app called memory jogger and it's setting your own notifications and, you know, you can put in whatever you want. So, you know, every month or so I will sort of like really rewrite or I'll write what are the, um, you know, what are the, what are the, either the mantras or the reminders that I need the most? So sometimes it's drink water, you know, um, and then, you know, sometimes it's things like, how am I attending to my deepest emotional needs in this moment? You know, and so you can put anything in there. So, you know, you can write a sentence that really speaks to what is the most alive for you. Um, and then, you know, instead of it's like, I have all my other notifications turned off. I don't get text notifications. I don't get email notifications. The only notifications I get um, are the ones where I am speaking to me about the life I want to create. So that's a, a big favorite of mine. I yeah. love it. Um, another product that I love, um, just because it just works so well, um, is, um, they're basically haptic products. So one is Apollo neuro. Um, another one is touch points and, you know, basically what it does is it's sort of like a very low level vibration. It's low enough, um, to, you know, not distract you, uh, so much that you can't think or do what you're doing. Uh, but it's high enough that, you know, it captures the attention of your inner lizard, <laughs> you know, like the, the part of your brain that, you know, often freaks out. Um, and, you know, and then when your body gets attached to what's happening. So um, like touch points are great. You know, as soon as you put them on your skin, one on either pocket, they are bi, uh, bilateral, um, you know, validated reduction in stress or physiological stress response. Um, you know, 60 to 70% almost instantly. And it's really just because it's like the lizard that's like, ah, gets distracted and it's consistent enough that, you know, it's not a, it's consistent enough that it's not an emergency. It's loud enough that it captures the lizard's attention and it's low enough that you get to, you know, you get to give the speech or work on the model or do the interview 
or whatever it is you need to do. And it just works. It's great. They're like $149. It's awesome. Um, so that's also, you know, one of my, one of my favorites. Another one that I love is, uh, Ember, um, and it's for primetime women. Um, and basically it's, uh, one of the areas I'm fascinated with is thermal regulation. Um, and so, you know, they're, what they're doing right now is, um, you know, it's, it's great for women who are, uh, who, or anyone really who um, has issues with temperature change. But if you just like go and, you know, and research studies on temperature, um, you know, temperature and performance are, you know, and cognition are really tied. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of interesting research on it. Um, and the people who built it actually did it because they were really cold inside um, their lab at MIT. And they were trying to create personal heat sources. Yeah, before cold was trending, courtesy of Wim Hof. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so there's, you know, there's lots of things like, like that. There's so many wonderful products out there. So, so many wonderful products. So I'm about to, to turn 40 in like a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I'm I'm equally shocked and uh, and sort of happy at the same time. Um, the grey hairs are, are setting on, um, as you can tell. Um, but um, I'm curious. I was wondering this the other day. You know, so I'm turning forty. You know, biohacking and then transformative technologies. Um, you know, are getting exponentially more, more, more sophisticated and, and profound in their impacts. So I'm, I'm curious, am I, am I middle-aged or am I less than middle-aged? What's your, what's your projection here? <laughs> well, I'm planning on having a 150 year health span. So, um, to me, you're a puppy on the cusp of life as am I, um, I like that. you know, I mean, we're definitely not aging the way our parents did right? Like our parents aged completely different than we do. And so I think when you see, you know, the people who are in their fifties, you know, reaching their sixties and seventies, they're going to look different even than the sixties and 70 year olds today, you know? And so, you know, some of the things that, you know, you'll really be able to see is you'll be able, you know, as you get into your sixties, like you're going to be seeing these really integrated platforms, uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is um, I really, you know, I think um, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, the wide scale, easy ability to do continuous glucose monitoring. You know, I think that that is just going to be a, um, a, uh, a level set um, or, you know, completely reset things for so many people. I think that, you know, there'll be enough data to really do a strong tie between food and mood, um, you know, and so people will be able to, um, you know, solve a lot of problems in the grocery store um, and, you know, and they'll be empowered to do so. Um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's going to be fascinating. Um, you'll be able to get down to a level of personalization, not just about your physiology, but also your psychology with that. Um, you know, the, I, I know a, a researcher who is, uh, working on the ability to, uh, measure, uh, cortisol and adrenaline in meat. Um, and the reason why that matters. And if you just sort of think about it is that apparently 
you know, if you eat cortisol, um, then your adrenaline spikes. And if you eat adrenaline, then your cortisol spikes. And think about our food system. You know, the factory farms, I don't know what the farms are like in Australia, but in the US, it's like, you know, these animals know that they're going to die for days. And so they're, you know, so their their meat is riddled with stress hormones, you know, and then we eat it, you know, and, you know, it's not, the, the science is not tight yet, uh, but, you know, the, the theories are that basically like eating death and, you know, eating stress and violence <laughs> has an effect on your, you know, your own endocrine system uh, as it relates to how you respond to stress and violence. So it turns out the Buddhists were right. <laughs> we're, 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 we're leaving with some advocacy here for, for vegetarianism and veganism potentially as, as different ways to, for both sustainability. Yeah. Labeling, because what that would do is like you would, if when you were looking at the nutritional, if you were looking at the label, when you were in the store and you could actually see, you know, adrenaline and cortisol listed, you know, in this, I mean, that's far off, but like this meat has this much adrenaline and cortisol, you probably would start picking family farms. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Farm to table or or reading the book, The Ethical Omnivore, for example, I think is, is, is playing a little bit with Michael Pollan's original um, omnivore's dilemma uh, concept. Um, yeah, I think fascinating. I think there's a, there's a real story here in terms of, you know, both the numbers, the data, the, you know, the transparency of what we eat and then the constant monitoring and mapping, uh, hopefully also that the hacking and the interventions that you've spoken about uh, here during the, the, the second renaissance and, and how we all on an individual and, and, and global humanitarian level will, will flourish as, uh, as individuals and as a society. So thank you very much for sharing your, your future vision with us uh, here, Nicole Bradford. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs>